Welcome to Van Lathan's The Red Pill, where we give you the brutal reality of truth. Our guest today, David Oyelowo. Um, he is a very fine actor. Um, you guys probably know him best for playing Martin Luther King Jr. in Selma. He has a movie coming out right now called Don't Let Go. It's him and Storm Reed. It is a film that I got the opportunity to see. A metaphysical thriller. I'm not going to give too much of the movie away. He is here promoting that film. Um, it is a great movie. Michael T. Williamson is also in it. You guys know him as Bubba and also uh, <laughs> Waiting to Exhale. A bunch of other movies. Great actor. Uh, Alfred Molina, um, Brian Tyree Hill. Great cast. David Yellow is the lead. Uh, we're here talking about that. We're also talking about a, a great bevy of other issues of what it's like for him being a devout Christian in Hollywood. Uh, he is foreign. Um, grew up in uh, London and Nigeria, played Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we're going to touch on a subject that has been very sticky here stateside. Uh, British blacks, British Africans, British, no, not Africans, British black people, people from the UK, playing American, African-American symbols. Hmm. I didn't have to say American there twice there but i did i'll say that i'll do, I'll do that part again uh, we're going to touch on a very sticky subject here stateside which is uh british black people playing the roles of historic black americans he played dr martin luther king jr uh, there are some black people that believe that we should be playing our historical figures and that there is a reason why uh, we are sometimes not allowed to how does david feel about that what's david's read on that is that a fair assessment of things? And uh, does it take away any of the authenticity of the role if someone from overseas or somewhere else that is not an African descendant of slaves plays a role like Harriet Tubman? He gives his answer, um, and we have sort of a back and forth on that. <clears throat> now, before we get to David Oyelowo, I want to talk about something. Real quick, as I take a drink of the tea. Still dealing with the... Uh, with the effects of this uh, side effects of this Lexapro. Um, a chicken sandwich. I want to talk about that real quick. Chick-fil-A, you're done. It's over. You had a good run. We were, you know what, to be honest with you, Chick-fil-A? We stuck with you as long as we could. We should have been got off y'all. We should have been left the Chick-fil-A business. But now, we have a reason to. Now, a brand that we trust, a brand that helped raise us, a brand that helped contribute to some of the unhealthiness in the community has given us a non-problematic option. We don't have to eat in shame anymore. We don't have to exist in the shadows, betraying our LGBT brothers and sisters by supporting that Chick-fil-A conscious killing chicken sandwich. We don't have to do it anymore. You know why? Popeyes to the rescue. Popeyes to the motherfucking rescue. I'm not even eating meat right now, so I haven't even heard I haven't even tasted, should I say, the Popeye's chicken sandwich. I haven't had a piece of it. But I know 
that they won't let me down. I know that that chicken sandwich is off the chain. I've seen the reviews. Everyone that I've talked to, it's like I've been getting texts from random people that I haven't heard from since high school. Like, yo, my nigga Van, you tried that Popeye's chicken sandwich? I'm like, no, dog, but how are you? You know what I mean? Like, I haven't seen you in a long time, man. But, you know, how, how are things going? It's a buzz on the streets. You see what I'm saying? It's a buzz on the streets, Chick-fil-A. The streets are buzzing. And that buzz is your demise. You guys been a little bit too crazy too long. Now, I'm not going to lie. You go to a Chick-fil-A, it's a delightful experience. You know, someone gives you your sandwich and you say, thank you. And they go, my pleasure. And you're like, oh, shit. These niggas really love serving you the chicken. You think to yourself, wow. I could do this every single day. And you go home and you Google something. You find out, like, Chick-fil-A donated to Freddy Krueger's birthday. And, like, it's like Chick-fil-A donates to some really weird shit. Like, Chick-fil-A donates to, like, the committee to reelect Vladimir Putin. This is some weird shit going over there at Chick-fil-A. It's like they make the chicken sandwiches out of pain, and we all know pain tastes good. But all that's over. Chick-fil-A better change, man. This could be the end. If we don't have to eat these problematic chicken sandwiches anymore, you think we're going to eat them? I'm telling you. Chick-fil-A, y'all better do something. Seriously, man, I better make a deal with Rock Nation. That's the only thing that'll save you right now. Get them involved. Just bring them on board. Take all the problematic stuff that you've been doing. We know that we know what it is. We've supported it in spite of ourselves for too long. Make a deal with Rock Nation. Partner with them on chicken sandwich music and with a side of social justice and some Polynesian sauce. That's the only thing you have left to do, Chick-fil-A. If not, you're out of here. The culture has turned the page. We're looking on to more things. You gotta get the Paper Planes crew in there to help you guys out. If That's your only chance. That's it. We need a seat inside the table of Chick-fil-A. We need a seat at the chicken table. Other than that, I don't know what to tell you. If, if not for that, I think Popeyes, I think we're going to move on. You goddamn haters with that chicken hate over there. We're not dealing with it anymore. It's now I'm time to eat. Uh, Guilt-free chicken is the new wave. Now, as I say this, there's someone who's going to dig into the corporate dollars of Popeyes and find out that Popeyes gave approximately $13 billion to Trump. I don't know that that's the case, but that's always the case. But until that happens over the next couple of hours, we're going to bask in chicken sandwich freedom. You got one hope, Chick-fil-A. That's it. <laughs> hey, I had nothing else to rant about. Let's get to David Oyelowo. <laughs> Pop some pills, let's do it. We are ready to go. Man, it is a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. I am a, I am a big, big fan of, I know you, you must hear that all the time. Like, I'm a, I'm a, I, I love your work. You know, and by the way, I like to like, um, 
I like to watch because like when you there's a thing when you see someone in a movie, right? Then you see them. And I remember the first time I noticed that things were going well for you is Interstellar. Okay. I was like, oh, there he is, because right, right, right. it's such a the the scope of the movie is 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 so uh, huge, yeah. and that's just I'm like, okay, well now it's you know Christopher Nolan checks start coming in, like life is a little bit different. You feel what I'm saying? Exactly right. All right, we're gonna get controversial right away. White people clap for David Oyelowo. I heard that that was I heard that that was controversial for you. You want to know why we make the white people clap? I was just curious as to why the white people and, and, and not the black. I'm all about equality. You are? Let me tell you what the equality is here. No, I'm just joking. Um, so I, out in the TMZ space, yeah. it's just about like uh, like I'm a minority there. Okay. This is my little realm. Okay. So like the, I have the only the finest of white people. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only the highest caliber. Yeah, fine looking white people. Hi, highest caliber Caucasians we have. Yes. Um, uh, so they clap. But you know what? Let's do it again. Everybody clap for David O'Yellow. There this will we be the go. Only time. Can you the feel only the time. wave of love now? Yeah. When he leaves, y'all know how it is. <laughs> Doing this for Dr. King up here. Um, <laughs> so let's jump into it. Um, before we get to any of the other uh, myriad things I want to talk to you about, let's talk about Don't Let Go, man. Yeah. So I watched this movie um, last night. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that I say is I am always so impressed with Storm Reid. Mm. I was so impressed. She is just... A dynamo. I know. And um, the film, which is a little, which would be a little hard to, I guess, explain. Mm-hmm. You, you could explain it better than I can. So, t- if you were giving some p- people a synopsis of this movie that you have coming out, mm-hmm. um, what would you, what would you say? Like, what's the tagline, as they say? Well, I, I play Jack Radcliffe. Mm-hmm. Storm Reid plays Ashley, my niece. We have a beautiful relationship, and a devastating thing happens. My mm-hmm. family is murdered. My niece as played by Storm, uh, my brother and my sister-in-law. And I'm in the process of mourning when I suddenly get this phone call uh, from my niece, Mm -hmm. who was supposed to have died three days ago, and she is calling me from two weeks ago. Mm. And I realize that somehow time has split, and I might just be able to reach through time and save her. And you are a Los Angeles police detective. Yeah. So let, let me tell you how good the movie is. And I really mean that. That's not cap. Now, I, like, I, I really mean it. The movie is so good that you start asking yourself, man, how is this happening? But then midway through the phenomena of her calling, mm. you forget that question. Right. And you're just so gripped by what's going on because uh, it, it starts, at first the guy obviously thinks he's going crazy. Yeah. Then it starts dawning on him without giving too much away and they start having a little interplay back between one another mm-hmm. and then it really, really, really gets going. Exactly. So. Would you describe this as like a metaphysical thriller? Is this like a like it's kind of like a is is this a thriller? It's a thriller, but it's a it's a psychological thriller. Yeah. It's a supernatural thriller. Uh-huh. Um, it's a time travel movie. It's a time travel. It's movie. a whodunit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all of those things, but. Above and beyond all of that, for me, it's an unconventional love story. It's it's interesting. This, it's this beautiful relationship between this uncle and his niece, mm-hmm. and it's the the love they have for each other that is the driving force right. for them trying to reach 
to each other through time yeah. and not just me save her but her save me as well because that's what happens that, and that well, is no, that, that's, that, not, that, that's what could happen that is ultimately what we're striving what we're for. striving for you don't that, know if that, that happens that, or not <laughs> you gotta go see the movie to decide what happens and who saves who and how I know it's, 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 it's a good thing that you said that because ultimately the, the way we, we, we seek to save each other is, is not Obvious as well. Sure. You know, there, there are just so many things about it. But what you said there, I, it makes me so happy because it's what drew me to the project, which is that the genre elements, the time travel elements, mm. those are all kind of the wrapping yeah. for the emotional thrust of the story. And I think that's why those things go away, because ultimately everyone can identify with wanting to save and protect someone they love. And ultimately that's what the film centers around. Yeah, and also the very early on, something that you guys do a great job of, is establishing that this relationship between this uh, niece and this uncle they ha there's so much trust there mm. to where when he lays on her this completely mm. nonsensical, <laughs> just out there, outrageous idea yeah. that there's enough trust and love between them that they can work past this. Yo, because if, if well, my, one of my uncles called me right now, it's like, yo, Van, just let you know, I'm calling you <laughs> from two weeks in the future. I'd be like, you on crack again? Like, what, what, like what's like, what, like, what is like, what are you, have you relapsed? What you mean it's two weeks into the future? But in it, but in this particular situation, oh, there's so much going on yeah. um, that it worked. When did you guys shoot the movie? Uh, we shot it about a year and a half ago. Okay. Um, so uh, Storm Reed was actually 14 when we shot it. I mean, it, the, the difference between 14 and 16 It's is wild because huge. that's why I asked because I'm like, I'm like well, I'm watching the movie. I'm yeah. like, I just saw Storm Reed. Yeah. That's baby Storm Reed. L right literally, she grew six inches since yeah, then. Yeah, she's like, not be tall now. Exactly. Duncan. That's exactly right. Um, but yeah, so we shot it in LA about a year and a half ago. Okay. Um, a great cast. Uh, Alfred Molina yeah. is in this movie, you guys. Doctor Octopus yes. is in this movie. Uh, Michael T. Bubba, yeah, wow, yeah, powerhouse before and yeah. um and my man from Atlanta, uh, Brian Tyree Henry. Brian Brian Tyree Henry. Brian yeah. Tyree Henry um, is, is so a great a great cast in the film. When you get, I'm sure you get all kinds of scripts at mm -hmm. this point. They're just sending them to you, blah 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 blah, and you're, you're reading them. What makes one stand out to you now that you have so many options? Well, I'm always looking to do something different than what I just did, mm -hmm. um, but also um, something that scares me, something that when I read it, I think, ooh, I don't know if I'm going to succeed at this. I don't know that I have the capacity for this. And where that was the case with Don't Let Go was the emotional headspace I knew I would have to inhabit. Mm -hmm. You know, I have kids myself, and it's it's your worst nightmare. You know, right. you're, you're, uh, those you love, your kids, your family, being murdered, harmed uh, in, in any way. And I knew for myself as an actor, I don't shy away from really um, steeping myself mm -hmm. in the emotional space of the characters I play. And I knew that that wasn't going to be an uncomfortable thing to do. But also, ha to make it work, action, the thriller element, that, you know, to, to make this feel plausible, which right. is the only way this film works, is something I knew that was going to be a challenge, which is what made me want to do it. I, I'm always interested in actors and how they leave their lunch pail at work, like how they, you're in a character's head so much, mm. so much time, mm. how you don't bring something like that, because those are such real and like, um, just like soul 
fulfilling emotions to kind of deal with, like your yeah. love for your kids and all of the stuff like that. They're so weighty. Yeah. Like for me personally, I work at TMZ, right? Mm -hmm. And just I just have a rule. If you mention Kim Kardashian to me after I leave work, I smack your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> I just do like that's a rule. It's a trigger. Right. Like you just I, I tell okay. you, I give you you got one warning. Right. And you know I don't care about it. Right. So I got you talk to me about Justin Bieber. We fight. Right. That's it. Right. So so as as I'm in, glad of the warning. By yeah, the just way. As, as a warning. But come on, man. you can you can we can have one conversation. Um, but for you. Uh, how do you turn off the character that's in your head? You, you're doing so much work to be mm -hmm. able to kind of get into that space and, and really be authentic. What do you do? Sometimes you don't want to turn it off. Sometimes really? you've got to stay in it. Yeah, sometimes you need to stay in it. And that that's to do with the price of, of getting to play great roles. Um, what you don't want to do is have it affect your personal life in, in a bad way. So even though I live in LA and we shot this film in LA, I actually chose to not be at home because oh, wow. I, I knew that it was going to be something I didn't want to subject my kids to, my wife to, um, because I had to be in it. Some of, some of being an actor is, um, to be emotionally selfish. You have to create a space for yourself whereby you know this organism that is the character can not just survive but thrive. Mm -hmm. um, and um, not every role is gonna demand that. This was definitely one of those. Um, you know, there have been other films I've done that required it. Selma was one, a film I did called Nightingale was another. I whereby, saw that. Yeah, the, 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 exactly. Mm -hmm. the, these characters just they just cost more, and, mm -hmm. and, that, and that's sometimes what you, what you want and what the audience demands. How long were you away from home? Um, pretty much the whole shoot. I mean, I would, I would go home, you know, on weekends, and, and whenever I had maybe scenes that weren't as intense, mm -hmm. because it was not only for me, it was for my, my kids as well. My, right. You know, I, I don't expect them to understand that daddy is in a kind of a headspace that means he's more grumpy or he seems more sullen, or mm -hmm. I don't want to put that on my kids. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with, with, with Selma, it was a bit weird, daddy going around talking like Dr. King all the time, <laughs> but, you know, but, but that was just something Boy. That, that was I said to you you better clean that room now you see you know now saying? you see the price they right. paid yeah we will play while mm -hmm. I was doing that role but um like I say not every role demands it but some do you know what you just did what you just gave license Okay. To every actor that's watching this, <laughs> to spend time away from their families. Look, oh, baby, dear. I got a guest star on Ballers coming up. <laughs> I got to be away from home for 16 months. Oh, my goodness. I'm telling you, like uh, that, I, I was listening to the Red Pill. And David said, sometimes you just got to get away from your wife and hang well, out at Sam's Hofbrau. Well, I should bring balance to it because right. I, I, I do. I have a two-week rule with mm -hmm. my family. as well. We're never apart for more than two weeks. Okay. No matter so, what. No matter what. No matter that what. That is very interesting. Yeah, my wife and I have kept it. We're going to be 21 years married next month, and we have Wait, managed, what? We have managed. Man, to, give yeah. it up for that. <laughs> 21 years? Wow, that's amazing, yeah. my brother. So yeah. 21 years, yeah. a two-week rule. You're never away for more than two weeks. No. we. There was one time we went over by 11 hours, and it was devastating. And my wife, my, my wife, I'm serious. We made this pact. We made this pact. And we were like, never, ever again. My wife was doing a movie. They changed some scenes around. Mm -hmm. So she had to get on a different plane. We were so upset and we've managed to not do it again since. What made you guys decide to do that? Because one thing that we hear when we hear a lot about couples that are in Hollywood, mm -hmm. a lot of times when relationships end, we hear 
these hectic, busy schedules exactly. were contributed to the fact that they couldn't yeah. develop and keep the intimacy and the fabric of their marriage going. When was it that you guys decided that's something that you wanted to do to change? Well, that? you look at Hollywood, you look at the entertainment industry generally, and you mm-hmm. just see the the high rate of mm-hmm. divorce and relationships breaking down, families breaking down, and of course, it's to do with these very difficult schedules. You're there, they're here, you're six months apart. Not only that, you're on sets with very attractive people in amazing places mm-hmm. and, and you're in this bubble where it's make-believe but it feels real when you're there. All of these things are, are challenging to real family life. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for me, very early on, my wife and I were 20 and 22 when we got married and, and naively, in a way, we went, okay, we are not going to be those people so we're going to make this pact and we stuck to it. And even though it's been incredibly challenging, it's meant the kind of air miles that people would cry at. Right, yeah. um, but it's been worth it because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I'm not going anywhere. She's not going anywhere. It's mm-hmm. because we are in each other's company enough to keep building our love and our marriage. You ever thought about adding like a FaceTime clause? Like, listen, <laughs> like, we got two weeks, but as long as I can see you, baby, you know what I'm saying? Like, my FaceTime clauses, technology has changed, that's all I'm saying, baby. Um, but, okay, so, uh, as far as this movie, this this film goes, it's a, it's a film that you can tell isn't, you've done some huge, huge, huge films. Like, you did, like, what's the difference between doing a film like this um, that's very character-driven, mm-hmm. a little bit more pared down, then maybe like like a movie like we talked about, like Interstellar, mm-hmm. where obviously like the budgets are crazy and stuff like that. This was mm-hmm. a film that seemed very intimate. As an actor, is there a different approach to doing some of the bigger films that you've done to some of the smaller films that you've done, or is it all the same? It, it's not all the same because the demands are, are different. What I love about doing a more intimate, pared-down film like Don't Let Go is that you are the tool truly for telling the story. You know, mm. you're not, you, you can't rely on a bunch of CGI or great big set pieces. You know, you are drawing in the audience uh, through your experience, your emotions, your ability to overcome these obstacles that are placed in front of you. And I think at the end of the day, you and I can both relate far more to a narrative like Don't Let Go than Interstellar or Rise of the Planet relate. of the Apes. I couldn't even understand the, Interstellar. <laughs> like, like, you, you, like, you, like, you, like, like, seriously, like, uh, that, that's a true thing. Like, I read, like, I went and like, I left the theater, I was like, yo, people were asking me, like, yo, how dope was that movie? I was like, that shit was off the chain I, can't, I love that <laughs> then i went home to try to understand the movie and i did my wikipedia research and he wrote they, they wrote the movie with kip thorne oh a real astrophysicist and stuff like that they were like yo we get near a planet and it's like 15 years to one hour i was like yeah that makes a lot of sense what are they talking about <laughs> like i really didn't even understand the movie but yeah even rise of the planet of the apes which by the way is one of my favorite movies oh wow rise of the planet of the apes i thought it was such a brilliant take uh, such a brilliant way to reboot that entire thing. Right, To I kind agree. of tell that story <laughs> uh, from the beginning. And you were a total dick in that. I was. Bro, I was. I was. You Just were trying to change it up. Dick like that. You have Dr. King on one hand, and then you have right. this guy. Really, you it's know, your fault. Steve like Jacobs. One guy who kind of <laughs> saved the world, another guy who kind of ended it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So You can't pin me down. Yeah, like, right. You're all <laughs> over the place. Um, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit. So you played Dr. King, and then yeah. you played a fucking... Who who made you know apes talk in the forest in San Francisco take over the whole world? You're welcome. Virus. Yeah. Um. 
So w- w- what's the <laughs> difference like when you're going to play the villain? I had a you, you, there's a guy named Jason Isaacs. You ever, do you know? Jason yeah, Isaacs? yeah, yeah. So I ran into him to, in the gym one time, and I'm talking to him about that movie, The Patriot. Yes. And I'm, you seen that? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, I was like, bro, you like. You were great in that movie. He goes, well, I was the bad guy. He's like, I right. killed a kid and burned a farm down in the first scene I was in. It's pretty easy. Yeah. When you're playing a villain, yeah. uh, someone who's not beloved, like we're rooting for you so hard and don't let go. Right. What's a different space that you have to be in as an actor to play someone that you know we fucking hate? Like we hated you in Rise of Planet. Uh, it's a great Donna question because the thing that you have to get to is a lack of judgment for that character because they don't think they're a villain and you can't play a villain in the same way I believe that you can't play a hero. You know, those things are things that are imposed upon you by from without as opposed mm. to from within. The, 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 the actions you do and the way people react to them is what defines you as a hero. Mm-hmm. Same thing as a villain. A villain has very real reasons for why they are doing what they're doing and sometimes legitimate reasons, maybe even understandable reasons. And so the thing you can't do is going there and going, I know I'm bad and I'm being bad and watch me <laughs> being bad. You know, right. you're, you're just thinking, you know, Steve Jacobs in Rise of the Planet of Apes has a real rationale for mm-hmm. why he's doing what he's sure. doing. And you've got to play the truth of that in order for the film to work. Hmm. So there's no, there's no, there's never any time where you just think, yo, I just got to be the biggest dick asshole. And no, you're just, you're just, you're just being real to the character. Cause sometimes, come on. No, well, I just, I, I stay away from those roles because mm. if it's just a one dimensional character, you don't do it. you're set up for failure. You, mm. you, you, you ultimately cannot give a performance where every single thing about that character is just the evil things they do. Right. Um, whereas with Steve Jacobs, or I just play Javert in, in Les Miserables, you know, that's a guy who has very real rationalized reasons for mm-hmm. why he's behaving the way he's behaving. Yeah. Um, and th- and that's sometimes why the best <clears throat> character in it, you know, I, I thought, for instance, Michael B. Jordan's character in Black Panther was one of the best. I don't Not even a villain. Know, but, but on the surface of it. I was rooting for him. Exactly. But on the surface of it, you could think of Black him. Black Panther, you were working with as, the CIA. As <laughs> you could think of him as the villain of he the was, piece. He was, of course, the villain. Yeah, but but that is one of the, the most nuanced versions of mm. what I'm talking about. I gotcha. Yeah. Um so I, I did some research on you. You're a prince. I am. You 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 Give it up me for out. royalty. <laughs> you're uh, well, why don't you explain this to people that don't know you're an actual prince. Yeah, it's it sounds more impressive than it is. It's a little bit like being yeah, the prince of Sherman Oaks, fucking you know, but it's, it's the like, prince of Sherman Oaks. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a bit it's a it's not like being Prince Charles, do you know right. what I mean? Um, my grandfather was the king of a part of Nigeria called Awe, which is in Oyo State in the western part of Nigeria. So, mm-hmm. but you know, princes in Nigeria are kind of a dime a dozen. Okay, first of all, right. I'm I'm gonna need you to kind of pin your shoulders back. And, okay, yeah, you know what I mean. You're a prince, dog. You let me be a Nigerian prince. Okay, ain't, no, no, ain't no. My grandfather was the king. Like, it's no, no. Forget about that. I don't care if I was the prince of Seven <laughs> Eleven. These are royal sonships. You feel what I'm saying? Like, 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 nah. You're, you're a prince. Oh, so your, your, your background is also equally fascinating. You are, you were born in London, born yes. in Eng- born in London. Yes. Um, and then you moved to Nigeria, mm-hmm. and then came back to London. Mm-hmm. So what I'm interested in, as far as that's concerned, is when you moved from London to Nigeria, what was the biggest adjustment to being? Um, 
because it was Legos, right? Yes. What was the biggest adjustment that you that that you underwent when you came to Africa? Uh, the biggest adjustment was going from one society where me and my family were very much a minority to a place where not only were we the majority, but, you know, Oyedowo means a king deserves respect. So even my name hints at a sort of... What does it mean again? A king deserves respect. So, uh, <laughs> are we back to the sun chips? No, nah, we're back to the white people. <laughs> right. Y'all took these names from us. <laughs> like, like, nah, I'm going to address y'all real quick. Y'all took these names from us. His name means a king deserves respect. My last name is Lathan. Okay? <laughs> like these, like that, that, that's deeply disturbed. Austin, you laughing too hard. You can get out. <laughs> a king deserves respect. Okay, so you're adjusting to a, so you go from being a minority to having everyone. I was yeah. talking to a buddy of mine, a very brilliant man. Um, uh, he's he's um, African and he was telling me about how, even though where he came from, I believe he was from Ghana, he, he, he is from Ghana, even mm -hmm. though where he came from, there was uh, um, a, a lot of poverty, a, a lot of different problems, there was still a pride that he had for himself. Yeah. And a, and, a, and a belief in his culture that he always, that he brought to America with him. Mm -hmm. Guy's a brilliant financial guy. Um, because he saw presidents that looked like him. He saw uh, people in society look like him. Doctors that look like him. All those things that really growing up where I grew up in Baton Rouge, we didn't have as much of. Yeah. Was there a sense, did you learn something about your own personality and your personal pride that you had in being Nigerian when you got back there that maybe you didn't have before? Or was it just a learning about being the dominant culture in the country. You know what? That's 100% correct. I call it the Sidney Poitier syndrome. You mm. know, I, I always look at him, what he achieved, the way he did at the time he did. And I, I completely attribute it to the fact that he grew up in a society where he was the dominant culture mm. um, in the West Indies before he moved to America. And mm. that meant he carried himself differently in given situations, which right. I think is why he went on to achieve what he did in a country, in a society, and at a time where just that it was completely at, at odds with what was going on. You have to believe. Yes. Exactly. And, and not only do you have to believe, but you have to, it's the way you walk into your life. It's mm -hmm. the way you get out of bed. It's the way you think of yourself. Right. And if you are oppressed, feel oppressed, and uh, it's, it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that you are going to be oppressed, mm -hmm. it affects how you embrace any opportunity, mm -hmm. how you perceive any opportunity, how you then embrace that opportunity if you're afforded the opportunity, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that energetically, I think, you know, dictates how the results manifest. Right. And so for me personally, being in Nigeria from the age of six to 13, formative years in right. terms of developmentally, the way you think about yourself, the way you see the world, it definitely meant that when I came back to the UK and then now living here in America for 12 years, I have seen how my men mentality, which is not a minority mentality, has very much helped me with the way I have stepped into opportunities. Maybe I wasn't being a afforded or ones that I have been afforded and how that affects the result. Having said, that's well said. H having said all of that, what's b being from uh, first the UK mm -hmm. and then living uh, in Nigeria, what are, just this is a broad question, mm -hmm. what are your opinions 
of the black American experience? Because a lot of times, and the reason why I would ask that question is because I, I hear what you're saying and it makes me envious. Mm. Um, it makes me envious because so much of my brain, I, I, I have to be sort of connected to the history of black people here mm -hmm. because I have to know what I'm up against and what I'm in for. Yes. But there's a part of me, part of all of us, that would really wish that we didn't have to worry about pain and injustice and we didn't have to worry about things like that so we could just go and live our full hearts and be our best selves. Mm. When you look at, at, at black Americans here and because, you know, when people see you walking down the street, me and you are th the same. They mm -hmm. don't know until they talk to you. Then they go, oh, wow, mm -hmm. look at that. Mm -hmm. You know, that happened to me. I told you, I haven't told you about Idris Elba's story. Idris Elba did a movie in Baton Rouge. Nick, you've heard this story before. It was deeply, deeply disturbing. Mm. Idris Elba did a movie in Baton Rouge. I thought Idris Elba was Stringer Bell from The Wire, mm -hmm, for real. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I talked to him, and he was on some Pip Pip Cheerio shit. And I completely was like, yo, wow. what is this? Is this real? Right. What is going on? Um, but it, when, you, when, you, when you see kind of the plight of black Americans, and you see what it is that we go through, do you have any, what would you wish that we could learn from our brothers and sisters in Africa? I do have opinions about it, and a lot of them are very painful because I, I see what we've been robbed of. Mm -hmm. um, because if, whether literally, educationally, spiritually, emotionally, if you somewhere in your subconscious think that your inception as a people, as a culture, as a society is rooted in being enslaved, mm -hmm. that is going to inform so much of what manifests in your reality. Hmm. And that's a devastating thing to have to overcome, even though it was four or five hundred years ago and is not necessarily um, definably part of your day-to-day -day now mm -hmm. it is it is energetically in there because right. when i and systemically you know, as well it's system exactly yeah. systemically as well so there's the <laughs> self-fulfilling prophecy of the fact that it hovers around and mm -hmm. there's a reality to it but then there's the mental side of it mm -hmm. of 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 um so much of what i am carrying is tied to that mm -hmm. because i feel the difference of you know we joke but being able to literally have been to a place where my family have been for hundreds, if not thousands of years, for there to be even royalty tied into it, but very real wealth and being majority and being uh, 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 every opportunity. Just victory, David. Victory. Yeah. Like, victory. Yeah. Like you, like, almost, uh, I, like, I'm, I get, <laughs> every time I think about that, just like, it's it's like you guys were you triumphed yeah like you there was it, <laughs> like you you look back on things and there's nothing that you're trying to overcome you're just trying to access something right it's just totally totally different yeah and we're still figuring out really on the fly how we build that here we had a guy here uh blitz the ambassador who directed a great movie called the burial of kojo mm. um a fantastic film, and when you just hear about these cultural differences, it it, it makes you a little envious. Yeah, and it may, it makes you kind of wonder too. You know what I mean? Like like how things are because we know what we're capable of. Beautiful people connected at the soul, but like your your point's well taken. It's it's do you ever have you? I'm sure that there must be a part of the experience of Black Americans here that is rubbed off on you. Yeah. Uh, what if any do you feel like has? 
Well, you know, I feel the the pain and the legacy of it more than I did uh, of exactly what we're talking about now living here now yeah. raising four kids who are essentially growing up as African Americans right of course um, uh, having played some of the roles I've been uh, afforded that are very steeped in the African American um, story culture yeah. history um, <clears throat> and being a, a black man living in this country actually now as a legally uh, you, you know a, a, an American as Give it well. up that Trump can't kick him so, out. So <laughs> He's a citizen. Got, Trump can't got make in, him leave. Got in just in time. Yeah. Um, so y- y- I feel deep connection, but also real empathy and understanding. I'm going to be completely honest. When you are on the outside looking in, you have these sort of notions of, oh, come on. You know, yeah. come on, guys. Let's let we, we we can we can we can do better. We are better. You know, that's not our legacy. Let's let's forget the part. It is in your. Ev- I mean, you look it's at the prison industrial complex. You mm-hmm. look at, you know, police brutality. You look at the things that we have to deal with that other people don't. Even in my industry, you know, the fact that a film like like Don't Let Go is still an anomaly where you yeah. have a predominantly black cast telling a story that isn't rooted in race and pain and the racial struggle. Yeah. Um, y- you know, we are still in that place. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, you, you know, it's, it's, it's a real thing. It's, it's devastating. But I also am very um, optimistic because what I do has real cultural impact. Um, in terms of education, I think that that's a huge thing, being able to look beyond yourself. But in all honesty, until this country comes to the place where it can repent for its sins and acknowledge that sins were committed against Native Americans, mm. against black people, I th- there, is, there, is, there is something systemically that is going to... You, you can't... You can't get away from that original sin we are going to we are going to be in this yeah we are going to be in and and Mm -hmm. others sure you know those are the the big ones but this this gets our women too yeah exactly yeah so there's this cyclical thing going on where in my opinion america is in denial about truly what this country was was built on and who it was built on Mm. and until there is an acknowledgement of that in a very public kind of socially responsible way, I think I think some of this stuff we're dealing with is going to remain. Hmm. So we're on task now. You played Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Yes. Okay. Um, it, it, he was popular. Uh, <laughs> he's popular now. He wasn't popular then. Actually. That's, that's uh, very uh, true. Um, uh, there's a Harriet Temple movie coming out mm. uh, this fall, mm. and it has sparked a discussion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it sparked a discussion about representation, what's proper, what's improper. The there is a very talented actress. I I'm Cynthia Arriva. Yes. She yep. I know her from uh, 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 the El Royale joint where she was singing yes. the entire time. Yes. And also she was in Widows, I believe. Yes. Uh, great actress. Yes. Great actress. Great voice too. Mm. Uh, great in both of those films. Um, she's playing Harriet Tubman. Uh, and she's British, mm-hmm. so right away there was a black bla- uh, a backlash. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, there was a backlash because she is not born mm-hmm. of African slavery here in America. Mm-hmm. She doesn't. She's not what they call an African descendant of slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is some conversation that uh, because Harriet Tubman, <clears throat> excuse me, is such a huge figure to Black Americans mm-hmm. that a, it should be 
an imperative that a black American play her. Mm-hmm. Dr. King is also very important to black mm-hmm. Americans. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if you know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he's, <laughs> I've been told. Yeah, he's important too. <laughs> what do you think of that notion? For me, the conversation begins and ends with what you said about Cynthia, which is a great actress. You know, what is our job? What is my job as an mm-hmm. actor? My job is to inhabit a character to the point where I either convince you of the truth of that character or I don't. And it begins and ends there. Should Rami Malek not have played Freddie Mercury? Mm. Should uh, 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 Meryl Streep not have played Margaret Thatcher in Iron Lady? Mm -hmm. Should... Uh, Denzel Washington uh, play Steve Biko. Right. Forrest Whitaker, should he not have played Idi yeah, Amin? Should, should Morgan Freeman not Actually, have played... Actually, some people played... might have been like, y'all can have that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he won an Oscar he for it. He won an Oscar for it. It was know, fantastic. And, 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 and sometimes, I think that these conversations can be tied to not just the character, but the potential or perceived or eventual success mm-hmm. of, of this, you know, that if she goes on for to, to that film to be a huge success and then mm-hmm. she wins accolades for it and all of that, that conversation will only get bigger. And this is where, in my opinion, we've been killing ourselves. Right? White actors don't have to, Rami, Rami Malek doesn't have to deal with this. Christian Bale is never going to have to deal with this in playing uh, Dick Cheney. You know, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis will never have to answer this kind of question in playing Lincoln. Uh, and And it's because of limited opportunities we've been afforded historically so there's this scrabbling for the scraps but we I I like to think that we are segueing into a different day where not only potentially is there enough for everyone but we have the capacity to create Mm -hmm. a bigger pie for the rest of us. People yeah. came at me for playing Dr. King, but they don't realize or recognize or know that I fought for that film to be made for seven years. Mm. I fought for Ava DuVernay to be the one to direct that film. There's a real chance that film wouldn't have been made if I hadn't done those things. That narrative was sat there for about 50 years after Dr. King had died and no one had made a film that had him at the center of that narrative. And I'm not saying that I'm the only one who could do it, but I rolled up my sleeves for seven years and got it done and I think that that in and and I did not take the opportunity for granted I worked as hard as humanly possible to tell the truth of that story and the greatest compliment I was ever paid is that people didn't realize till after the fact that I was British and it wasn't till then that there was the question so for me that's the win if Cynthia does that role and kills it and people feel moved and they feel like they have a revelation of who Harriet Tubman was and there is something about that story that makes them just lean in and maybe even want to know more about her, that's her job done. The Mm -hmm. rest of it, to me, is just divisive stuff that keeps us back. Hmm. Real talk time. So there's Nick May right there. Yes. My partner, my homie. You know what I'm saying? Me and Nick have a little company together. We're about to take right. over, man. Shout right. I believe uh, it. Uh, me and Nick argued about this. Mm. Nick sees it as you see it. Okay. I was mildly annoyed. Okay. And I'm an, I'm, uh, I'll am I'm. tell you why. And it's, this is the problem sometimes with this. You're right. Mm-hmm. And I'm emotional. Okay. Okay. So, I like, right away, I would love it to be a situation to where, um, these things didn't bother me. Mm-hmm. But there is something inside of me, and I'll let you speak to this, that says, when I see, you so much as Dr. King, I don't think I was in the same headspace then, uh, but when I see 
um, someone from overseas playing Harriet Tubman, the the like uh, the Moses character that I was taught to follow since I was a, a, a little kid, right? It feels sometimes like somebody saying, "You guys aren't even good enough to have your, to, to to be a part of your own history," mm-hmm. and maybe that's not real, but it feels like when I when, even when I see Zoe Saldana as Nina Simone. When I see all of this stuff that, that that's do, that that that's happening, I, I go, is this another way of Hollywood telling us that they don't want us to tell our own stories, that there's something wrong with us being who we've been? Now that's a that's a that was a, a black American woman's journey, and sometimes I feel like if a black American woman can't get that, what can she get? Where am I wrong? So I was involved with that Nina Simone film okay. that, that Zoe Saldana was in. Mm-hmm. And when I first came onto that film, it was going to be Mary J. Blige playing the role. Okay. Um, and uh, for all sorts of reasons, she stepped away from it. And the financiers, uh, there, was, there, was, there was a list of actresses that they felt if they played that role, there's a real chance to recoup their investment. Mm. And there were actresses that people really wanted I mean, and I'm talking about the public now, to play that role. Hmm. They turned it down. African-American women who, I was like, whoa, Hmm. if we got her, and that everyone was saying it should be them, they turned it down. Hmm. And if Zoe didn't step up, literally the film was not going to get made. That's the reality of that. So what would we rather, that our stories not be told Um, or they be told by people who feel like I feel I I am going to put because she was very aware of the task, not just in terms of what you're talking about, mm-hmm. but just to go and try and play that role. There's a real cost to doing that. Yeah, heavy role, by the way. Heavy, heavy role. Yeah. And she was the only one who stepped in mm. and said, I, I for for the budget for the money. And people would argue, well, she shouldn't have. And yes, I would rather the film doesn't get made. And that's their prerogative. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, in terms of Cynthia, Casey Lemons, phenomenal African-American uh, 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 director, African, uh, uh, female director directing it. Deborah Martin Chase, phenomenal, legendary African-American uh, female uh, producer doing that Mm -hmm. at the end of the day they made the choice to hire who they thought was the best actress for the role Mm -hmm. that's their prerogative in in relation to what it is we do Mm -hmm. no one is going out of their way to say it's got to be a black british actress no one right she you know cynthia as you said she's She's Tony winning, not, not nominated, winning, She's Golden great. Globe winning, yeah. you, you know, uh, uh, um, Emmy winning, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and did a phenomenal job on stage with uh, The Color Purple. Mm-hmm. She has the chops, she has the look, mm-hmm. and they decided she was the right person to get that film made. She gave the finances the confidence they need. So should it... Should it not be made? I'm not saying there aren't African-Americans out there, but she was cast on merit, not because Mm -hmm. she's British. So I I get the emotional element, and there are things I'm emotional about, but, you know, in this instance, I think that we've really got to make a decision between whether we believe that acting is about an 
an actor going to the role or a character coming to the actor. Hmm. And that is fundamentally what I think acting is, is an actor going to the role, having the ability to go to the role, inhabit it and be truthful in a way that whether you knew I was British or Jamaican or African or African-American, you felt it. Mm -hmm. And that's my job. Yeah. End of story. Mm, there you go. Um, so, listen, you... I need to give you your props right now. I'll tell you why I'm going to give you your props. Because we keep talking about Black James Bond. Who's <laughs> going to be Black James Bond? I bet y'all don't know. This is James Bond right here. <laughs> he played James Bond. Nick, did you know that? Nick, did you know that David played James Bond? David, tell Nick how you played James Bond. I played James Bond in an audio book. So what? So <laughs> 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 so, <what? laughs> I am the first black James You're Bond. You're the first black James Give it up for the first <laughs> black James Bond, man. Your own people won't even clap for you, David. I'm telling because you. Because it's an audio book. I don't man. matter. <laughs> <laughs> you like when you, okay, so when you're playing black James Bond, are you right. like, are you making your voice white or are you just playing like I'm saying like how do you do it are you like it's me double O seven like, like, what, like, what, like, wow I'm you just, went nasal I'm, I'm, yeah that's how they smell oh anyway, my goodness joke. Um, but like when you when you when you like like when, when things like that come about first of all what do you think about because I'm getting into the James Bond thing right Um, James Bond is this is on the other side of it you play James Bond I read that I, I, you have an extensive audio book which other audio books have you done uh, the Mission Song. Mm -hmm. I, I did a Jean Le Carré novel. Uh, gosh, I you know I blank. That was just one of the other ones. And so yeah, you got like you're a renowned audiobooker. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, he is. So James Bond is a is a staple uh, character mm -hmm. from your side of the world. Yes. Uh, do you think it's about time you see some diversity there? Um, here's what I really think about it: the fact that this keeps on coming up. <laughs> Okay. is a great thing right. because 10 years ago it was just not even uh, on the radar and I, I think it's because you have Chadwick and Michael B and Idris and Chiwetel and John Boyega and Daniel Kaluuya and you have all of these people who have now emerged who are genuine candidates mm -hmm. who have now had proof of concept moments whereby they are in big movies that people have gravitated towards they've shown the chops to be able to deliver that means that the audience is going I like that guy in that I want to see him in more of that kind of thing and mm -hmm. that to me is what the James Bond conversation represents is that they want to see heroes they want to see international kind of you know heroes as big as bigger than life exactly bigger than life and not always exactly. a biopic people that are bigger than life that's it they're up there doing cool stuff that's jumping it. off billions buildings and stuff that are also black exactly right. and and i think that that's what and james bond just happens to be the the zenith the the poster boy the north star for that kind of role mm -hmm. and when you have someone like idris elba throwing down the kind of performances he does but also the charisma mm -hmm. and the the screen presence he has the audience is saying i want more that's yeah. basically what it is and james bond just becomes the very easy low-hanging fruit but i just think it's it's just you know a, a, a not unlike Don't Let Go was written for a white 
guy on a farm in Ohio. It was what? not. It was not a detective in South Central Los Angeles. You know what the hell? I know. I know. That's what it was. It was initially. don't let go of your MAGA hat. <laughs> basically. Wow. Like, basically. Like, like, for, uh, really? Yeah. And then so they cast you and they changed things up? They or? cast me and it became clear that, you know, that didn't feel right <laughs> for me to be on a farm right. in, in Ohio. Right. So we were like, let's take the opportunity to make this feel specific. We're not going to make it about race, mm -hmm. but let's do something that feels organic to me playing that role. And so that's why it opened up in a way whereby Storm Reid, Michael T. Williamson, Brian Tyree Henry, Sh uh, uh, Chanel Azoro gets to be in it mm -hmm. because we are in this moment where a, a, a company like Blumhouse, a director like Jacob Estes goes, you know what, let's go a direction that we weren't thinking mm -hmm. and see how it opens it out. That to me is what the James conversation is about also. Real quick before I move on off James Bond, are you throwing your hat in the ring right now for James Bond? <laughs> with like, with like right now, hey, come on bro, every other guy with that accent is doing it. So like, just, like, are you throwing your hat, like, would you like to play James Bond? They come to you right now. The, the truth is, I don't know. I know Daniel Craig quite well. Mm -hmm. It's it's tough gig. It's a tough gig being James Bond? It is a tough gig. I like to mix it up. I like to play all kinds of different oh. roles. And James Bond is so iconic that once you're doing that, you are that guy. Yeah. And that's a, that's, that, that it's can be. It's MCU thing. Like Chris Evans had to play. Right. Like, like <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. Everyone's all crying. There's one person right now that's not crying because Tony Stark died. There's one person right now that's very happy to have buried Tony Stark. The rest of us cried. Yeah. Robert Downey Jr. is not crying. I would agree with like, you. Like, he is, he is ready with you. for Tony to be dead. He's ready to move on and do some other things in his career. And to change so it up. As, yeah. us, as us watching the films, it's hard to see that because it's such a cool character and stuff yeah. like that. We don't see it. But you exactly. do, it, it is a big responsibility to be an iconic character like that. It, it, it really is. And it means that every other thing you want to do is seen through the specter. Of that, and mm -hmm. I've had a career whereby, you know, I had it to a little degree with with Dr. King, sure. but I tried to pivot very quickly. I was offered every other civil rights leader, and I had to to shut it down mm -hmm. and take different kinds of opportunities so that I don't get typecast in that way. To play James Bond would literally be to go, okay, mm -hmm. that that that's me for the for the next few years. That's how you're going to perceive me. So I'm not saying no because I truly believe in never say never, but it is a real challenge with playing that kind of role. That's why I like about Chadwick Boseman. Chadwick Boseman has run the gamut. Chadwick was James Brown. Right. He was Thurgood Marshall. Right. He was Jackie Robinson. I thought right. they were going to give him Nina Simone. Right. He's been everybody. Yeah. Chadwick Boseman is the whole deal. Um, he's talk, a great actor. He's a fantastic actor. Love that guy. Yeah. Uh, talk about Blumhouse a little bit, man. Mm. Um, they come with such a reputation of quality films, mm. of, of, of quality films, quality genre films, mm -hmm. kind of what, what they do. Uh, what was it like working with them? What was it like? Was that is that something where you make the film and then they buy the film? Or is that something that where they were involved in all of these guys? No, the reason why they keep on making really good films is because they are very much part of the development process, but they also bring in uh, directors actors, uh, writers who they empower. Mm -hmm. Who the, what is your version of the story? What is the story that when you were at that studio or doing that other thing that I, that we know was a frustrating thing for you? What's the thing you wished you could have done? Come do it here because, you know, there's less money, which means that we can take more risk. Mm. 
And that means you can truly go in, roll your sleeves up, and be creative. There, there's a real chance that, you know, if this film was at a studio, they wouldn't come to me. You know, if it's set on a farm in Ohio, we know exactly who yeah, we're yeah, going yeah, for. Yeah, 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 you right. know, but this was, they, they have the latitude to kind of take more risk and be more brave. And they also are continuing to build a diverse audience because the audience is voting with their dollars in relation to what they are putting out. And so they are becoming more and more emboldened to be more and more front-footed with how they empower artists to go in there and create alongside that company. Hmm. Talked a lot about different roles. Is there one role that you were up for that you missed out on that you're like, yo, damn, I wish I would have got that? I ask this question all oh, the time. Wow. Actors always, Sammy Davis Jr. around it. I need you to answer the question. <laughs> oh, wow. There are films I really wanted to be a part of that I did. I, I mean, like back in the day, um, something that came away when I was still at drums was Amistad, you know. Oh, wow. And, uh, and you know, uh, I didn't get it, but Steven Spielberg wrote me a letter. Uh, really? Re uh, really, yeah. He so, wrote me. so you, want, you were you're going to be sinking. That's what uh, you were going for. No, it wasn't. I think it's the role that Chotel for eventually ended up. Oh, playing. he was he was I forgot that he was in that. He yeah. was the guy he was he was uh was he, the, he was helping uh, uh Matthew was, McConaughey. Yeah, they, they were something? legal, they were like representing together. Yeah. He was helping them like he yeah. was from he understood the language and that's so it's been right. a while since I've seen it, but yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it was that it was that role. And um Chiwetel and I were actually at drama school together and and uh, we were both at drama school and he left to go do it and that was you know, we, we were up for it together and I didn't get it and uh, but that led You've to the, a lot of Shakespeare, did you think about poisoning him or something like that? <laughs> No, no. You know, I I do believe what's for you is for you. But that that was one where I think it was more getting to work with Steven Spielberg. That was the thing that was just like wow to be coming straight out of drama school. But then I I had that opportunity with Lincoln, which I did with Steven Spielberg. And you know, in many ways, it was if I had to choose, it would be Lincoln that I would take because. Daniel Day-Lewis is my favorite actor of all time. And he's not my favorite actor of all time, but he's the best actor of all time. Yes. He, well, I, I, he's both for me. Yeah, he, like, I, my favorite actor is, you know, I like Denzel. Yeah. I, but I also like Robert Downey Jr. It's a tie. Yeah. But Daniel, I've never seen anyone as good as Daniel Day-Lewis. He, he is extraordinary. And to get to see him up close playing Lincoln gave me the blueprint of what I had to do to play Dr. King. Mm -hmm. And so it was... It fulfilled my ambition to work with Spielberg, but it also fulfilled my actor, my ambition to see my acting hero. But to get to be schooled by him by literally just being in his, in his, you know, presence. Mm -hmm. What did the letter that Steven Spielberg wrote say? Just that you know you did a, a really good job. I wanted you to know. Better that. luck next time, uh, Chappie. Exactly. Right. right. Exactly. But, no, but it, it was that, really that, encouraging. That must have felt really good getting that from that kind of guy. Yeah, you know, it's look it, as an actor. One of the things you're gonna just have to face is the reality of rejection. Even if you're successful, if it's not the casting director, it's the director. If it's not the director, it's the critics. If it's not the critics, it's the audience. If it's not the audience, sometimes it's the box office. Sometimes you have these peaks, and then you think that you're the person you're you're the guy and then it's like yeah not not so much the next time around so you know that's just something you have to come to terms with you have to build quite a a thick skin too but when someone of that caliber says you're good keep going mm. that's the stuff that really is just fuel to your engine and doesn't in, in fact keep you going on the awards tip you do dot you do dr king with some of the movies highly critically acclaimed mm. 
were you at all disappointed when the Academy didn't come with the nomination or anything like that? The thing that was disappointing was to, after something that had been such a positive, amazing, life-changing experience, to then have the word you were the words you were robbed, you were snubbed, you were robbed, you were snubbed. It was it was sort of like I found it kind of oppressive, mm. and 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 even since then, every award season, what happens to me now is they go top 10 worst snobs of all time and, and and it becomes like and like I've become the poster child for the Oscar snob so it's just like oh man you, you know that's 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 but you know those you people know. say that they're actually bigging you up they getting it's 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 it is it is a, a kind of a compliment but do you wish it. that would kind of go away though that you that, that you weren't because basically they're saying you were so good and you didn't get it and also some right. people like you know they didn't give it to him because he black you know what I'm saying? So like, do you, do you, <laughs> yeah. do you like, do you feel like you know you want that narrative to just kind of go away? It's you know, I, I could live without it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wouldn't miss it. Right. But you know, uh, Selma was the beginning of Oscar So White, and then yeah, it, sure. it, it was two years of Oscar So White, and. Mm -hmm. Maybe I don't get to play Jack Radcliffe in Don't Let Go without Oscar So White. I mean, yeah. it, it definitely shifted something, mm -hmm. you know, both in terms of the Academy and the entertainment industry in general. So I've always kind of thought, you know, there's something, there's something just about a, a, a film about voting rights ending up changing how the academy voted mm. and then what that went on to do within the industry that i am a part of so you know even though that side of you know the snubbed thing i could do without but the legacy of the film was not just the film itself it, mm. it, it was part of a shift in 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 hollywood and that i am immensely proud of well like i got to meet ava one time nick behind ava but uh, you got what does what, what that say you holding something up one more question. Okay, cool. Uh, we're going to cut off the one more question thing. <laughs> this is the last question. Um, you are devout. Yes. Um, last question is, what's that like in Hollywood? Being a, a Christian in Hollywood is actually incredibly useful because the, 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 the greatest asset you have as an actor, I think, is your ability to say no. Um, and it is the basis on which I think good careers are curated. And I have this layer, which is my moral compass, which is my, you know, I, I take the things I'm considering to God in prayer. And just turns out God has great taste. Mm. So, you know, it, it really helps me with making career decisions, decisions I can stand by both as a father, as a man, as an actor, as a content creator. And like I say, it really has enabled me to make um, decisions that I can I can continue to stand by. There are very few things I look at on my resume and I go, why did I do that? You know, it, 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 it continues to line up with the man I am and the man I continue to hope to be. Do like when people when you hear people say it's so hard, do you understand what they're talking about, or is that something that that hasn't been your experience? So hard to be uh, so to be to be devout to be, a, to be Christian in Hollywood. It is hard, but 
it, it gets less hard when you have non-negotiables mm. and when you're surrounded by people who you are accountable to and who can continue to validate your decisions. I think mm. it's hard when you're on your own. You know, I've been married, as I told you, for, for, for a long time. My wife and I are on this journey together. I have a church community. I have people around me who continue to validate my decisions. And I have children who I want to be accountable to. I'm raising them in a certain way. And I want the roles that I play to reflect that. I don't yeah. want my kids to go, there's a disconnect between the roles you're playing and the way you're telling me to, or, or teaching me to live my life. And so, uh, but also on top of that, I really mean it. It has meant that I have made choices that are, are not instant gratification choices, both to me and the audience. And I do think that that has enabled me to, 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 to make choices that are, are good ones creatively. Hmm. Next choice. James Bond. I'm starting right now. <laughs> We're going to do, you know what? We're going to let David out of here, but I, I'm going to have a pitch real quick, 10-second pitch. It's not just James Bond. We're changing it. It's the Bond brothers. It's ah. James and Idris, right? Okay. All right. Uh, they're the Bond brothers. I love it. They're like, you ever see like, uh, you ever see like twins with Arnold Schwarzenegger and them? Like, oh yeah. We're gonna so do I'm Danny DeVito. No, I see, get it. You, I, knew I you get it. He's tall. I'm not. I'm not. He's buff. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not Danny DeVito. What I was saying. It's okay. I wasn't saying that you were Danny DeVito. <laughs> what I was saying was that you guys are created in some. Like, we'll work it out. You know what? Because <laughs> we're gonna work we're gonna, on this pitch. Gonna, me and Dave, we are gonna yeah, work on the yeah. pitch. Be ready, do, studios. We're, we're gonna. We're gonna, gonna get this. Bond Brothers coming in 2023. Bond Brothers. Yes. I appreciate you, my friend. Bless you, my friend. Whole room. Give it up for David. <laughs> Thank you. Yo. This was great. I appreciate you, bro. We out.